our young people, sixth grade and down, can be dismissed for Children's Church. I know that they're looking forward to a wonderful time there. It does not bother me to hear sound resonating from that room back there. Uh, it's wonderful to know that our young people are learning that you can go to church and have a good time. Amen. And uh, learn about the Lord and your heart for Him uh, be deepened. Your love for Jesus, grow and have a wonderful time all together. The two are not mutually exclusive. Amen. Amen. Uh, I know we often tease about some Christians that you meet walking around looking by the look on their face, looking like they're waiting on a gallbladder attack to happen, uh, but uh, not here by the grace of God. Amen. John chapter 21, uh, I'll uh, uh, give some announcements at the end of the service. We missed our spot there, but uh, that's okay. Welcome to Crossroads Baptist Church. I know we have several visitors with us today. We're honored to have you in our presence. If we can do anything to be a, a spiritual blessing or encouragement or friend to you, please let us know. John chapter 21, verse number 15. The setting is after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The third time, verse number 14, tells us that Jesus showed himself to his disciples. Uh, they've traveled from Jerusalem where the first appearances would have taken place separately. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, go to Galilee. He would go before them into Galilee. So they've transferred 80 miles from Jerusalem in the province of Judea, past Samaria to Galilee in the north. And at the beginning of the chapter, Peter says in verse number 3, I go a fishing. That was a long way to travel for a fishing trip. But if the fishing's good, and this one turned out to be really good, it was worth the trip. Uh, for sure, but uh, there was far greater uh, significance to this meeting and far greater things that were going to happen uh, in Peter's, in particular, Peter's interaction with the Lord. Notice verse number 15. So when they had dined, this is after they had uh, miraculously, for the second time, uh, received a drought of fishes, 153 fishes, that was more than they could uh, haul into the boat. Uh, Peter has swam to shore when he recognized it was the Lord. And they've had breakfast together. The rest of the disciples, of course, got in as well. Notice verse number 15. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved. The word means hurt. Because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. I want to preach a message this morning that takes the question that Christ asked and use it as a title, lovest thou me? Lovest thou me? The poignant question of Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us as we consider the implications of this question to Peter and then the application of that same question in our own lives, those of us who profess to be believers and disciples of the Lord Jesus. And Lord, really, it's a question that we need to regularly be asking ourselves and measuring our love for Christ. 
I want to begin by thanking you that your love for us is perfect and complete. And Father, that's not even the focus of our message this morning, your love for us, Christ's love for us, not even the primary focus, though it's really the foundation uh, of our love for you and our love for Jesus Christ. I think about what John said in 1 John, his first epistle, that um, we love you because you first loved us. And Father, we cannot thank you enough for your love and your love in Christ Jesus for us as well. We think of what John said in chapter 3 of 1 John, Behold, what manner of love, an out-of-this-world kind of love, the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And so we begin by thanking you for that. But as we consider our love for you this morning, I pray that we would with humble and tender hearts bring ourselves under the ministry of the word and the hands of the spirit of God and would be able to move towards an answer of this question, do you love me? Coming from the Lord Jesus. And I pray this in his precious name. Amen. Really our focus this morning is priorities. I read a story earlier in the week of a management consultant in the 1930s by the name of Ivy Lee who was able to schedule a meeting with Charles Schwab. How many of you have heard the name Charles Schwab before? It's his name that is now on one of the major investment companies, financial investment companies in our country. But in the 1930s, Charles Schwab was the CEO of the Bethlehem Steel Company in Pennsylvania. Ivy Lee was able to get a meeting with Charles Schwab and went into his office and he said to him, he said, I have a technique that I want to share with you that I believe will improve all of your management, improve the efficiency of your company, and in so doing, also increase revenues. Like any hard-nosed businessman, Charles Schwab's first question was, how much Ivy Lee, interestingly enough, said, I'll let you determine the price after you've seen that the method works. He told Charles Schwab, take a blank piece of paper and I want you to write down a list of everything that you have to do today. Write it down. It's on your to-do list. You need to get done. And so Charles Schwab quickly, quickly jotted down eight or ten things that he needed to get done that day. And he said, now... I want you to, in order of priority, number those 10 things. Even if it's not the order you put down on the paper. In order of priority. And so Charles Schwab did, and he said, now here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to start with your first priority, and I want you to stick with it until it's finished. And then when it's done, I want you to go to number two. And when it's finished, go to number three, and then number four. And if you don't get through all 10 today, it's okay. You can pick up with the remainder tomorrow. But identify your top priority for today and finish it. Follow through with it. Charles Schwab was like, okay, I don't mind trying that. And then Ivy Lee said to Charles Schwab, implement this for several months, both with yourself and then with your upper management. And then once you've seen the fruits of applying this prioritization of your to-do list, send me a check for what it's worth. Three months later, in 1930, Ivy Lee received a check from Charles Schwab for $25,000. I checked the 
worth of that today, taking into account inflation, it would, the, would be the equivalent. The $25,000 in 1930 would be the equivalent of a half a million dollars today. Apparently, prioritization changed things with the Charles Schwab company and the steel company. This is all about priorities. And Charles Schwab in, 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 um, implemented this method and it revolutionized his company. And by the check, he showed what it was worth. But here's what I want you and me to understand this morning, and that is this. Loving Christ must be the believer's highest priority. And when we put that at the top of our list, everything else falls into place. Loving Christ. The questions of Christ to Peter proves the importance. The fact that Christ asked the question three times. Peter didn't realize it at the time, though I believe later on he would have, is that Christ is in the process of restoring Peter. Three times Peter had denied Christ. And now three times he would profess his love for Christ in answer to the question, lovest thou me? The answering of this same question in our own lives is vital. Yet, if I were to go around individually and ask all of us here today, do you love Jesus? Who among us is likely to say no? Now, we might say, I do, but not like I should. There might be some me and mawing around. But it's important for us to ask this question. So who among us is going to say, no, I don't? We're all going to say yes, but a deeper probe in asking this question is important to really, truly answer the question. If we're to measure the reality, the depth, and the priority of our love for Jesus, I want you to understand from Christ's interaction with Peter, number one, we're going to measure how much we love Christ. and If we love Christ, we have to drop any comparisons. I want you to notice something interesting. In other words, my love for Jesus is not based on my comparing myself to you or how you love Jesus or what you do. I want you to notice something. Notice the first question, verse number 15. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas. By the way, there's a whole message right there. Peter, or Jesus, is referring to Peter by the name that Peter carried when Jesus first met him. He's essentially saying, Peter, go back in your mind to where you were when I first found you. Before I had begun my work in your life, before you had come to the realization of my love for you, when I first met you, I want you to go back in your mind to what you were before you met me. And that's a great starting point for all of us. To go back in our minds to what we were and who we were before we met Jesus. And realize that that thought is the beginning point of of our love growing into what it should be. Simon, son of Jonas, now notice this, lovest thou me? But in this first asking of the question, Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, lovest thou me what? Say it with me, more than these. More than these. Jesus uses a comparative term, lovest thou me more than these? What's he referring to? I believe he's referring back to Matthew 26, 31 to 35, and John 13, 37 to 38, when Jesus had told the disciples, the shepherd's going to be smitten, the sheep are going to scatter, and all of you 
are going to forsake me before this night is out. And Peter said, uh-uh, not me. He even says, though all men forsake thee, I'll never forsake thee. Do you know what he's saying? I love you more than the other disciples do, and they might forsake you, but not me. Uh-uh. And Jesus says, lovest thou me more than these? If we're going to measure the reality of our love for Christ, we have to understand that we must drop comparisons. In other words, not measuring my love for Jesus in the sense of what I do in the name of Christ in comparison to what somebody else does in the name of Christ. It's not based on a comparison what I do, what you do, as a testimony of how much we love Christ. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact... I was thinking about this in preparation for the message. The measure of love, the indication of the New Testament, is not so much seen in what I do for Christ, but a reality and an understanding of what Christ has done for me. It was a Pharisee standing with his chest puffed out in the temple that thought he loved Jesus, if you would, or loved God more than the publican. I thank thee that I'm not as this publican. It was a Pharisee in whose house Jesus was having a meal in Luke chapter number 7 who thought to himself, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't let her be washing his feet. Do you remember how that turned out? And Jesus finished by instructing that Pharisee that those who've been forgiven much, love much. It's those who have an understanding in their mind, not what they do for Jesus, though we're going to talk about the importance of our commitment in a few moments to Christ. But the greater understanding of love, and the greater basis for my love for Christ is the reality of what I've been forgiven of. What you've been forgiven of. The reality and the measure of my love for Jesus is not based on comparisons to others. My comparison to others' backgrounds. Pharisees had great backgrounds but loved God little. They loved themselves more. But it was prostitutes and publicans and sinners with terrible backgrounds who the Bible indicates loved Jesus because they had a better awareness of what Christ had done for them. It was not a comparison to others' background. It was not an, a comparison to others' failures. Prostitution is a failure. Stealing is a failure. Lust is a failure. Sins are failures against God, obviously. But when I recognize that I can be forgiven of those and I've received the forgiveness of Christ, I enter into this awareness of how much Jesus loves me and it stokes the flames of my love for him. The measure of my love for Christ is not based on my comparison to others' accomplishments. You ever noticed how human nature kicks in when we go to doing this thing that Paul said was unwise, comparing ourselves with ourselves? We'll do one of two things. We'll either compare ourselves with someone we know we are better than so we can feel better about ourselves. Or then there's that cloaked form of pride when we compare ourselves with somebody who we think is better than us, having no idea of what their real issues are. 
And then we start feeling sorry for ourselves, and we get the Eeyore complex. Okay. One of the things that I want you to get about this message and this thought this morning is, is your love for Christ is between you and Him. It's between Him and you and Him. It's not based on a comparison of others' passion as well. I'm pretty transparent. But there are people that I know that don't have the, 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 the dynamics of emotion and personality that I do. But man, I'm around them and I'm thinking, this person walks with God. This person loves Jesus. And so it's not based on a comparison of personality. And Jesus brings this out. Lovest thou me more than these? He's trying to get Peter to understand that your love for me is not based on any comparison to other people. This past week at the mission board meeting in Indianapolis, we had the privilege of another pastor friend and I had the privilege of interviewing, furloughing missionaries home for a few months or a year, praying with them about struggles and problems and issues. And we had the privilege of um, interviewing a missionary to Papua New Guinea uh, who they've experienced. I mean, they are like deep in jungles. They're not even in the big city. I mean, Papua New Guinea is third world period. But there are big cities with some of the amenities of life. These people are in the jungles, deep, deep. And uh, we ask them how things are going and ask the wife how things are going and how we can pray for them in any ways we can be an encouragement. She's been struggling with some adrenal and chronic fatigue, major health issues. About 1 p.m., she's done for the day. Three daughters home educating the kids out in the middle of the jungle, planting a church that's just going gangbusters. And his wife has gotten sick. And, and so we just asked, so how are things going in the house? Is there any way we can pray for you? And she said, I, I don't have the energy to do the cooking. She said, my husband has to do all the cooking too. And she said it with tears welling up in her eyes. And I remember sitting there thinking, that's a man doing what needs to be done in order to love. Now, you know what I could have done? I could have sat there and said, I don't do the cooking at our house. I must not love my family. But that's not the basis. You get what I'm saying? As a matter of fact, because I love my family, I don't do very much cooking at my house. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying? Lovest thou me? The answer to that question, finding out the reality of your love for Christ, the, 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 the measure of your love for Christ, it's not based on comparison to others. But I want you to notice, secondly, if we're to measure the reality and the priority of our love for Jesus, we must deal with our own concerns. Not other people's concerns. You notice what Jesus asked in this first time he asked the question, lovest thou me more than these? Now, Conservative Bible commentators and scholars have debated what the these are that Jesus is referring to. Uh, some good commentators have said Jesus is here. Peter's just pulled in this massive catch of fish and the ship, the boat's rolling up the shore and he had been in the fishing business. It was his livelihood, his life. Some people have said they believe Jesus was referring to, lovest thou me more than material things, than the fish, than the boats, than the nets, the things of this world. Do you love me more than these, Peter? Some have said, as we mentioned in the first point, that they believe that Jesus is referring to the other disciples based on Peter's boast back in Matthew 26. 
but it still helps us to make a point. I, I think, I think there, I, I believe this. There are times, a few places in Scripture when the Spirit of God purposely leaves things a little ambiguous. And here's why. Because if it was specifically narrowed in on one thing, then I could say, well, that applies to them, but not me. <laughs> okay, but with some ambiguity, it actually broadens the application. And I want you to understand something. When it comes to measuring your love for Jesus, a point, another point that needs to be made, well made, is this. We're to deal with our own concerns. Let me make the application of idolatry and distractions. Now, we don't fall down and worship God's carved in stone. We criticize and make fun of the Hindus in India for their millions of gods in their pantheon. And yet Americans as materialists are guilty of their own pantheon of countless gods. For some, a job becomes a coping mechanism to escape the realities of other chapters or aspects of their life and they become a workaholic. At the expense of their family and their health, they idolize a job. They make their vocation, their career, their ambition. For some, it's education that is an ambition, an idol. Look, can I just simply define an idol as anything that you allow to come between you and Jesus? That I allow. For some, it's sports and entertainment. For some, it's relationships. For some, it's politics. <gasps> For some, it's fame to be known, even if it's in a small community. For some, it's pleasure, whether it's physical pleasure, emotional pleasure, whatever it is, mental pleasure. But here's the point. If I'm to measure the reality, the depth of my love for Jesus, it's important for me to deal with my own concerns. Okay? My idols or potential idols or distractions may not be the same as yours. And it may be that even as you're sitting there right now, the Spirit of God is just prompting in your heart. I, I went through this exercise in preparation for the message today. What are the potential idols in my heart? What are the potential idols in your heart, the things that are of greater concern to you than Jesus? And so the Lord would have us to understand as he asks the question, lovest thou me? If I'm to answer that question honestly, transparently, I must drop comparisons. I must deal with my own concerns. Thirdly, there is the need, if I'm to measure my love for Christ and answer that question that Jesus asks Peter of myself, do I love Jesus? How much do I love Jesus? Thirdly, there's the need to demonstrate your commitment. Gracie and I were doing some reading this past week and read a great quote. The quote said this, Love is not maximum emotion, it is maximum commitment. Our world is all confused. They think love is emotion, feeling. Now, 
Answer me. Is emotion and feeling a part of love? Yes. Amen. Okay. I like the feelings, don't you? Okay. But there's this issue of commitment. And really, Jesus, in his follow-up instruction to Peter, as he's asking him the question, Lovest thou me more than these? Lovest thou me? Lovest thou me? He then, when Peter says, Lord, of course I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. He gives him two categories of instruction that really create categories or categories that apply to all of us. Peter is going to be a preacher. I apply them to me as a preacher. But really these two categories have broad application to all of us as it relates to two aspects of life. Notice what Jesus said. Peter, lovest thou me? Peter said, Lord, you know that I love you. And then he gives him three times the command, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Take care of them. It's not just talking about providing spiritual food, but it's the idea of selflessly taking care of God's people. And then, in verse number 19, this spake he, signifying what death he should die. This spake the Lord Jesus about the kind of death that Peter would die. We'll not get into that today. This spake he, signifying what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, what? Follow me. Verse number 22, Jesus saith unto him, if I will that he, speaking of the apostle John, tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Two categories. Feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep and follow me. And we can take those two categories and make application for all of us. Feeding sheep is a sense of living to care for others, living to meet the needs of others outside of myself. As a pastor, it's sobering to me on a weekly basis to recognize that one of the greatest and most important ways that I show my love to Jesus is by doing the best job possible feeding this flock. But take care. And so the thought is this. If you're going to demonstrate your commitment to Christ, your love for Christ, it can't be done if you're living or if I'm living for myself. But living to meet the needs of others. Living to take care of others. Now I'm moving towards something here. The second command and category that Jesus gives to Peter is follow me, follow me. It's literally the idea of hear and then do what I say. We see that in James chapter number one. It's not the blessing that comes on a man who just hears, but a man who obeys what he's heard. It also has the idea of accompanying on a journey. So when Jesus says, follow me, he says, hear what I'm saying and do it. Walk with me, accompany me so that where I go, you're there. By the way, aren't you glad that where you go, he's there too? Okay. <laughs> what a blessing. Talk about getting your, having your cake and eating it too. I get to go with Jesus and he goes with me. And then this thought as well, follow me. And it also carries with it the idea of imitation. And many of you have heard this said before that, Imitation is the highest form of what? Flattery or worship. And so what Jesus is saying here, if you're going to love Jesus, if you're going to demonstrate your commitment as an expression of your love for Jesus, there are two categories. You live for other people's people, and then you love and worship and obey God. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? 
The first and the great commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as who? Thyself. Thyself. And so the importance of demonstrating commitment as an expression or measure of our love. This is not referring to moralism, that what I do gains me greater acceptance with God. But the commitment that Jesus is talking about in Peter's life and then by application in our life is this, is that when I come more and more into the awareness of his love for me and what he has done for me, I become motivated by his mercy and his love and his grace, and that moves me in my commitment to him as an expression of my love. Isn't the Lord Jesus wonderful? I'm asking that for a very specific reason. Because the Bible tells us that when they came up on the shore, notice if you would, uh, let's see here, uh, verse, number, uh, verse number 9, chapter 21. As soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid thereon in bread. A fire of coals, it's a very specific word in the original language that is used only one other time in the Gospel of John. And it's a few chapters earlier, in chapter number 18, where that word that's translated coals of fire here is used to describe the fire that had been kindled outside the high priest's palace when Jesus, or Peter, pardon me, stood there warming his hands and three times was asked if he knew Jesus. And he said, I know him not. I know him not. I don't know the man. And even cursed and swore. All of that took place around a coal of fire, coals of fire. It's the only other place in the entire New Testament that that specific word is used. And it's as if Jesus, in order to recreate the scene so that Peter could be reclaimed and prepared for future usefulness, Jesus kindled a coal of fire, coals of fire, just like Peter had a short time before stood at and denied Jesus. Now he stands at another coals of fire. And you have to know that he went back in his mind. And now Peter is being given the opportunity to be reclaimed. And he's being taught about commitment as an expression of love. Now, there's a caveat here. Qualification. And that is this. It is not my claims that I love Christ that really determine the reality of my love. It's not my comparisons to other people. We've already talked about that. It's not my customized standards. Have you ever met somebody whose life is way off track, but they've created this, this little um, standard that only they meet the criteria of, and they make that the criteria for loving Jesus? Okay. We could preach a whole message on that. And let me say this for the record. There are legitimate actions and expectations which characterize love. I'm not in any way questioning that this morning. But 1 Corinthians 13 makes it very clear that it's possible for a person to speak with the tongues of men and angels and not do it in love. It's possible for a person to give their body as a martyr and not do it in love, but to do it for the praise of men. 
It's possible for a person to bestow all their goods to feed the poor. And if you remember from several weeks ago, that word bestow is not talking about just in one extravagant act, but literally a conscious distribution over an extended period of time, taking every earthly possession that I have and giving it to feed the poor. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, a person can do that, that which would be associated with the action of love and yet do it without charity and it is nothing. What's the point? The point is this, is that though love does act, it's possible to do the actions of love without really loving. It's possible to go through the actions of love as a Christian that are in association with Christ, that maybe make people think, I love Jesus, and yet my heart is cold, I'm mechanical. I'm going through the motions. I'm doing it out of duty because it's what's expected. I'm careful to do this, and I don't do this very much. But a book was written in the late 18, early 1900s that was made into a production called Fiddler on the Roof. Heard of it before? Many of you have maybe seen it. And there's that conversation, Fiddler on the Roof, it's a a metaphor for the precarious position of Jewish people living in other countries, in this case in Russia, that is not only a changing culture, but a culture that is contradictory in so many ways to the Jewish tradition. Tradition. And the the idea of the precariousness of a fiddler on the peak of a roof trying to keep his balance with one misstep off either side. And the couple, uh, Tevier and Golda, are wrestling through their daughters, falling in love with non-Jewish boys or Jewish boys who are the more progressive type of Jew. And then in their conversation one day in private, and I have the dialogue of it right here if you ever want to read it. You can search it online. I'm going to, for the sake of time, just give you the paraphrase. But Tevye, the husband, looks at Gold, his wife, and he says, Do you love me? I'm just going to read it to you because it's really funny. <laughs> Do I love you? She sings it, of course. I'm not going to, I'll spare you that. With our daughters getting married and this trouble in the town, Golda says to Tevye, you're upset, you're worn out, go inside, go lie down, maybe it's indigestion. Golda, Tevye says, I'm asking you a question, do you love me? You're a fool, she says, I know, but do you love me? Do I love you? Listen to her answer, for 25 years I've washed your clothes cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked the cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? I think it's a very good conversation to have. Tevier says, Golda, the first time I met you was on our wedding day. I was scared. She said, I was shy. He said, I was nervous. Golda says, so was I. But then Tevye says, but my father and my mother said we'd learn to love each other. And now I'm asking, Golda, do you love me? I'm your wife. Golda says, I know, but do you love me? And then she turns away, as if in her own thoughts. says, do I love him? For 25 years, I've fought with him. (laughs) I've lived with him. I've starved with him. 25 years, my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? Tevye says, then you love me. 
I suppose I do. <laughs> and I suppose I love you too. And then they sing together. It doesn't change a thing. But even so, after 25 years, it's nice to know. Now, I use that to point this out. It is possible to go through all the actions and the commitment, but still miss something. It brings me to a fourth evaluation. If I'm going to measure the reality and the priority of my love for Jesus, if you're to measure the reality of the priority of your love for Jesus, you've got to drop comparisons. You've got to deal with your own concerns, the distractions, the idols that get in the way that are unique to you. You've got to demonstrate your commitment by feeding and following care and compassion, loving others as you love yourself, and then loving the Father, following Him, accompanying, obeying, imitating, worshiping. But there's more, and that is this. The measure of love for Christ will be manifested in a delight in Christ alone. In who he is. His companionship. And he walks with me. He talks with me. And he tells me through his word and his spirit, I'm his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. It's an understanding of the warmth and the joy of his presence. Notice this. Jesus asked three times, lovest thou me? He didn't say, lovest thou the ministry? Though that's important. He didn't say, lovest thou the programs of the church? Though those are important. He didn't say, lovest thou the church? Though we should. He didn't say, lovest thou the life that comes, the ethic that comes with being a Christian. He didn't say, lovest thou the structure or the discipline of the Christian life. Lovest thou the people of God? We should, yes, but that's not what Jesus asks here. The prioritizing question that Jesus asks Peter and that we need to ask ourselves. Do I love Jesus as a person? I love Peter's passion. I'm going to give you this and give a final illustration. We'll be done. I love Peter's passion. He had foot and mouth disease. Okay. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you would say that you easily identify with Peter more than you do Paul? I admit it. Peter encourages me. You know, it's like Paul went from zero to 60 as a Christian. Uh, Peter took some time. Okay. The Gospels, Peter, Peter. <laughs> Acts, getting better. First and second, Peter, mature faith. Okay. But don't you love Peter's passion? Nobody doubted whose side Peter was on. With that one exception, of course. I thought about this on the road to Caesarea Philippi when Peter made his great confession of faith and then Jesus said, I'm going to the cross in Jerusalem. They're going to crucify me there. Peter said, not so, Lord. Stood in his way. Now, Peter was ignorant. He didn't understand what you and I understand. It's easy for us to look back on him and say, he was standing in the way of the cross. He didn't have all the information you and I have now. Completed Bible. Not so, Lord. 
And Jesus did say, the position that you're taking is motivated by who? Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. Okay, that's Satan talking. Get thee behind me. But from a limited human perspective, I got to tell you, I don't want anybody that I love going to a cross. You with me? Appreciate Peter's passion. He loved Jesus. And just before going to the garden, it's Peter who said, I'll give my life for you. Do you think he meant it? Yes, we know he was going to deny Jesus in a little bit. Okay? But who else pulled out the sword in the garden to give his life and defend Jesus against 600 crack Roman and Jewish troops? Now, I, I, know, I know his actions were wrong. I get it. But think about his innocent or his limited motive. Okay? Nobody had to doubt whose side Peter was on. And even when he denied Jesus three times, and then you remember the Bible tells us that as Jesus was being led out of the palace of the high priest, he made eye contact with Peter. And the Bible says that when Jesus made eye contact with Peter after his denial and the cock had crown, that he went out and he what? Wept bitterly. Why? Because he knew he had broken the heart of Jesus, who he loved. I think about verse number seven. When they recognize that it's Jesus on the shore, Peter's naked. I believe it means that he had a, a girt, he was girt around. I don't think he was completely naked, but maybe what we would consider a pair of shorts. Okay. John says, it's the Lord. Peter puts on his coat and against common sense, puts on his coat and then jumps into the water. Okay. 200 furlongs or a, a cubits, pardon me, is about 350 feet. Those of us who were there, we saw it was out in deep water. And Peter, it's Jesus. I don't care if it is dangerous to swim with your coat on. I'm going to see Jesus. You've you got to appreciate his passion. Jumps in the water. He gets there. And then this is interesting. They've caught this huge draught of 153 fish, the biggest catch they've ever had. Peter leaves the other six guys in the boat, and they can't pull it in. So they got to row to shore, dragging this net full of fish that supernatural, I believe, didn't break. And so they're rowing in. Peter swam, and he's standing there dripping wet on the shore, seeing Jesus, joyful at the reunion. And here come these guys. I can hear them saying, thanks, Pete, for leaving us hanging. But, Je but Jesus is here. But Jesus is here. It's Jesus, guys. Who cares, right? And then this is interesting. Notice verse 11. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes. I had never seen this before. He did by himself what six guys couldn't do. You ever heard stories of... A mother, out of love for a child, when something dangerous, a car rolls on top of a child, a woman's adrenaline will kick in, and a tiny little woman will literally grab a hold of a car and lift the car off the child so it can be pulled out. The adrenaline of love. I don't know if that's what's going on here or not. I'm doing a little speculating here. But it's interesting to me that Peter by himself, just out of the excitement of being with Jesus, did something what six other grown men couldn't do. 
And even as Jesus engaged him in these questions, verse number 17, he saith unto them the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was what? Grieved. It hurt him that the question even had to be asked. But the Lord is in the process of restoring. And so the fourth evaluation of the depth and the reality of our love for Christ, drop the comparisons, deal with your own concerns, demonstrate your commitment by living for others and following the Lord. But don't, understand, understand, it's not what you do that is the sole expression of your love for Jesus. There must be, fourthly, delight in Christ alone. Now, I know that all of us are different levels of emotion. But, but I want you to understand something this morning. The reality of who Jesus is should do something in your heart and mind. Now, I know you may not cry like some people do. You may not shout and run like some people do. You may not <laughs> laugh. I don't know. But what happens in your heart when you hear the name of Jesus spoken? When someone begins to talk about the cross, begin to talk about the grace of God in Christ Jesus, what happens? What happens? Is there a delight, a joy that raises? There's something wrong when American Christians get more excited about the mention of the name of an athlete than Jesus Christ. Let's go a step further. There's something wrong when American Christians get more excited about the mention of the name of George Washington, Ronald Reagan, Donald Trump, or anybody else than they do about the mention of the name of Jesus Christ. That name. Name that is above every name. Lovest thou me? We're going to close with a song here in just a moment. It's one of my favorite songs. And to my shame, I had never done the study on the story behind it. If you want to go ahead and look at it, it's hymn number 455. It'll be on the screen here in just a moment, too. As you look at him, number 455, you'll notice the title, My Jesus, I Love Thee. Now again, again, understand, we love him because he first loved us. Okay, I'm going to shout that and echo it. We love him because he first loved us. But the response, the realization of that is, My Jesus, I love thee. If you look at it in your hymn books, you'll notice that the name of the man that wrote the music is A.J. Gordon. Adoniram Judson Gordon. He was a pastor in the mid to late 1800s, a Baptist pastor in Boston, Massachusetts. You'll notice on the other side the name of the author of the poem or the lyrics, William Ralph Featherstone. Most of our hymns, if you study the history, were written by older, more mature saints, those who had gone through some trials and difficulty. But this one is a unique exception to that general standard. 
William Ralph Weatherstone was saved as a teenage boy in Toronto, Canada, and at the age of 16, wrote the poem, My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. 16 years old. You can go and read the rest of them. There was depth there. He didn't realize really much of what he had written when he wrote the poem in the sense of the coming significance of it. So he put it in a letter to an aunt who lived in Los Angeles, California. This is a poem I wrote recently and sent it to her. She, as a mature believer, recognized what was there. Without asking him, as I understand it, she sent it to a hymn publishing company in London, England. Some musician put music to it, and they put it in a London hymnal. It didn't get much traction or notice, and some of it is believed because, some of that is because uh, the tune was just not very fitting. A.J. Gordon in 1876, now get this, three years after William Weatherstone passed away at the age of 26. Pastor A.J. Gordon was compiling a hymnal for Baptist churches. And in a hymn, that he, a hymn book he had in his collection of London hymns, he pulled out that book and he found that song and was immediately struck by the words, but as an accomplished pianist himself recognized the tune just wasn't going to work. And so he wrote the tune that you and I know and love now and put it to this song. And from there it became the loved hymn that it continues to be today. And all because a 16-year-old boy, young people, listen to me, hear me, because a 16-year-old boy answered the question, I love Jesus and I don't care who knows. And I'm going to shout it out. I'm going to write it in a poem. I'm going to testify of it with my life, even if my life is short. Another facet to the story, and then I'll close. After A.J. Gordon had written the new tune to it that we know and love now, a young actress on the Broadway stage in New York City trusted Christ as Savior under the preaching of the gospel. And she came across the hymn, My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. And it became her favorite hymn. As God began to work in her life, she realized that as a Christian, she could not continue to be an actress on Broadway. Much like the tenets of the faith and the filling of the Spirit and the presence of Christ in our lives causes regular contradiction with Hollywood in our day. I'll leave that right there for now. She went to her director and she said, I can't do this anymore. It's contrary to my faith in Christ, my love for Jesus, I can't do this anymore. And he said, listen, we've already put out the advertisement. There's not a second to play your part if you step away will you just do this one more time and then I don't care what you do? And the young actress reluctantly agreed to play that part one more time. When the last act was finished, as she stood on the stage and the audience erupted in applause, when the applause died away, instead of just leaving the stage, she stepped forward to the edge and she looked at the heavens and said to the Lord, My Jesus, in front of this audience... My Jesus, I love thee. 
I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. And if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. And with that, she walked off the stage never to return. And the question comes ringing down to you and to me through the ages from Jesus. Lovest thou me? Drop the comparisons. Deal with your own concerns. Demonstrate your commitment, but delight in Christ alone. Father, thank you for how you've worked in me so specifically. And Lord, as we conclude this service here in just a moment and sing, my Jesus, I love thee. I pray that each of us would sing it between our heart and you, not for the sake of any others, but between our heart and you. We would sing it out of complete and full delight in you. And a demonstration of our commitment to you, not in comparison to others, and dealing with any potential idols of our own heart, that we would do so even as we sing, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I want to challenge in just a moment as we stand to sing, believers, those of you who know Christ as Savior, as God has dealt in your heart, would you do business with him? It may well be that the Spirit of God has put his finger on an idol, and you need to forsake that idol today as a testimony of your love for Christ. It may be that the heart has just grown cold with the mechanics of duty and commitment. And today you just need to, to be renewed in your passion for the Lord Jesus, recognizing who he is and what he has done for you, and that he is real. If you're here today and you do not have the assurance of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you can't point to a specific time when you recognized I'm a sinner and you trusted Christ as Savior for the forgiveness of your sins and receiving the gift of eternal life, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior for sure, I want to make this offer to you. As we stand here in just a moment, the piano will begin to play, heads bowed and eyes closed for the first verse, if you need to be saved. I want to offer you this invitation. Just step out of your seat. Come to me here at the front. Nobody else will be looking around. I'll meet you and I'll introduce you if you're a man to a man, if you're a lady to a lady who can take God's word, take you to a private place in the building and show you from the scriptures how you can become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ today. If that's your need, let us help you with that. Join me in standing if you would. Father, would you bless this time of invitation as believers do business with you and any among us who are yet to trust you Savior. As they do business with you, I pray that we would have your blessing on this invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.